It's Friday, January 6th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how old is fast food? And to what extent was food actually healthier in the past, before our days of factory farming and artificial preservatives? A deep dive into the pros and cons of convenience food then and now. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. When I was a sophomore in college, we were all placed fairly randomly into themed seminar programs. Mine happened to be about food, and our professor, a French native who was the first to teach me that huge helpings of peanut butter are not exactly good for you, structured a hefty portion of the seminar around the then-recent book The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. Poland's critiques of industrial farming in the U.S. and our over-reliance on high-fructose corn syrup came on the heels of documentaries like Supersize Me and Food, Inc. that were mainstreaming concerns about factory farming and fast food, and series like The Skinny Bitch Books that were using toxic mid-aughts diet branding to covertly turn people into vegans. And while some decent discussions were raised by all of those books, movies, and primetime TV specials, a lot of it was presented through such a thick filter of fat-shaming and holier-than-thou naturalism that some of the facts and certainly many individuals' takeaways were fairly inaccurate. Now, I bring this up to contextualize a piece I want to share today— Writer and Roots of Progress co-founder Jason Crawford this week re-upped an article from 2010, originally written in 2001, about why we should love fast, processed food. Now, the excerpt that Crawford shared on Twitter was published with the title, In Praise of Fast Food. But in my opinion, that belies the full perspective of the writer-historian Rachel Loudon. Now, while Loudon was clearly taking on the smug, mock-concern culture of the turn of the 21st century who judged you relentlessly for picking white bread over wheat, let alone for actually eating at a McDonald's, Her point is less that fast food is the best, healthiest food option, and more that a lot of arguments against fast food and processed food don't quite hold up historically. And this is where I want to share some interesting takeaways. The article has been garnering some discussion on Crawford's Twitter as people share the surprisingly recent histories of a lot of different dishes, like baguettes and pad thai. And there are a lot of fascinating stories behind so many of those, especially ones that we hold up as traditional dishes of certain cultures when, in fact, they were invented elsewhere. And maybe I will dive into a few of those one day. I'm sure I will. You know I love a good food origin story. And in fact, the baguette thing I did kind of discuss recently, link in the show notes to that episode. But when I read the full unabridged article, I was much more fascinated by the push and pull of what people consider healthy food, who gets access to that food, healthy or otherwise, and how that affects our cultures overall. So Loudon's first point is that our conception that people centuries ago relied primarily on fresh and pure food is largely incorrect. In fact, fresh food was often considered inferior. It was more likely to go bad more quickly, more difficult to digest, and not as tasty. 
I mean, first, food only would have been fresh during certain times of the year, when produce was in season, when fish and game were abundant, when your livestock were healthy or the weather cold enough for them to be slaughtered, and therefore much of what was eaten was preserved in some way, dried, salted, fermented, etc. Quoting Loudon, Eating fresh, natural food was regarded with suspicion verging on horror, something to which only the uncivilized, the poor, and the starving resorted. When the compiler of the Confucian classic Book of Rights distinguished the first humans, people who had no alternative to wild, uncooked foods, from civilized peoples who took advantage of the benefits of fire, who toasted, grilled, boiled, and roasted, he was only repeating a commonplace— when the ancient Greeks took it as a sign of bad times if people were driven to eat greens and root vegetables, they too were rehearsing a common wisdom. Happiness was not a verdant garden of Eden abounding in fresh fruits, but a securely locked storehouse jammed with preserved, processed foods. End quote. Now, of course, an argument can be made that those methods of preservation, many of which are still in use, could have been healthier than some of the methods used today. You know, we worry today about the synthetic chemicals used as artificial preservatives, about the types of pesticides sprayed onto our produce, or the drugs pumped into the animals we slaughter as our meat. And I'm not saying a certain bout of skepticism isn't warranted there. However, as Loudon reminds us, quote, Ingesting food is, and always has been, inherently dangerous. End quote. You know, think about the strict diets that practitioners of certain faiths adhere to. A lot of those, some believe, were originally based in food safety. Some foods were more difficult to preserve, more likely to go bad in certain climates, and therefore more likely to make you ill. And as Loudon shares, quote, many plants contain both toxins and carcinogens, often at levels much higher than any pesticide residues. Grilling and frying add more. Some historians argue that bread made from moldy, verminous flour or adulterated with mash, leaves, or bark to make it go further, or contaminated with hemp or poppy seeds to drown out sorrows, meant that for 500 years, Europe's poor staggered around in a drugged haze subject to hallucinations. And certainly, many of our forebears were drunk much of the time, given that beer and wine were preferred to water, and with good reason. In the cities, polluted water supplies brought intestinal diseases in their wake. In France, for example, no piped water was available until the 1860s. Bread was likely to be stretched with chalk, pepper adulterated with the sweepings of warehouse floors, and sausage stuffed with all the horrors famously exposed by Upton Sinclair in the jungle. Even the most reputable cookbooks recommended using concentrated sulfuric acid to intensify the color of jams. Milk, suspected of spreading scarlet fever, typhoid, and diphtheria, as well as tuberculosis, was sensibly avoided well into the 20th century when the United States and many parts of Europe introduced stringent regulations. End quote. There are some new risks to our food now, and there are many that we've overcome. But before we move on, a word from our sponsors. So some people's perceptions that food before the days of artificial preservatives and factory farming was somehow more healthy certainly isn't the full story. Food was plenty unsafe in many ways back then, too. 
But when thinking about dietary balance, so not just safety in terms of an infection that could kill you, but the type of food that most nourishes your body, Loudon points out how, once again, we have a tendency to look at the past through rose-colored glasses. The challenges we face in this regard today are different from the ones they faced then, but challenges still existed. Just because people's food wasn't pumped up with as many artificial ingredients as they are now doesn't mean everything was healthier. And not everyone was eating perfectly balanced diets before the advent of fast food. I mean, for one, you know, maybe they didn't have fast food in the form of Big Macs back in the day, but numerous societies had convenience food that was bought outside of the house going back centuries. One of the earliest stories I covered on this show back in 2020 was the excavation of a snack bar in Pompeii. It was located at a busy intersection and is described as the Roman era equivalent of a fast food cart, basically street food. And Loudon points to examples of buying certain food staples or indulgences at markets as opposed to making everything at home throughout history and around the world. At markets, people bought noodles in deep-fried confections in 12th century China, ready-cooked meats in 12th century Baghdad, tacos in 16th century Mexico, wine and apple turnovers in 18th century France, and stewed fish and noodles in Japan. Now, it's a stretch to put all that in the same bucket as fast food, given how most of fast food's detractors talk about it now. You know, most people who view fast food as irredeemably unhealthy don't say the same about the rise of fast salad and smoothie restaurants like Sweetgreen. The quick convenience isn't the issue for most people. It's the type of food. But that quick convenience is one of Loudon's biggest points. She points out how in so many societies, for so much of history, a lower class of people were working nonstop to feed a higher class of people. In many cases, starving or close to it because all the food that they grew and processed was given to the rulers. And even within independent households, women typically worked all day, every day, to cook all three meals without any breaks in the monotony, making them unable to do much else with their lives, certainly to have some kind of occupation. And much of that changed in the 19th to mid-20th century, as more and more parts of the food industry became mechanized. Quicker transportation, more efficient farming equipment, new preservation techniques, and eventually household time savers and an explosion of ready-made goods. In one decade in the late 19th century, the retail price of food in a typical working-class British man's budget dropped by a third, according to Loudon. The working class began to be able to indulge in food that had previously been exclusive to the wealthy. Housewives were freed from as extreme ties to their cooking schedules. And this is the big takeaway for Loudon, the big counterpoint to people who view fast food and processed foods as the downfall of our society. Quoting Loudon, Culinary modernism has provided what was wanted, food that was processed, preservable, industrial, novel, and fast, the food of the elite at a price everyone could afford. Where modern food became available, populations grew taller and stronger, had fewer diseases, and lived longer. Men had choices other than hard agricultural labor, women other than kneeling at the metata five hours a day. Certainly, no one would deny that an industrialized food supply has its own problems, problems we hear about every day. Perhaps we should eat more fresh, natural, local, artisanal, slow food. 
But if we do not understand that most people had no choice but to devote their lives to growing and cooking food, we're incapable of comprehending that the foods of culinary modernism, egalitarian, available more or less equally to all, without demanding the disproportionate amount of the resources of time or money that traditional foodstuffs did, allow us unparalleled choices not just of diet, but of what to do with our lives. If we urge the Mexican to stay at her metata, the farmer to stay at his olive press, the housewife to stay at her stove instead of going to McDonald's, all so that we may eat handmade tortillas, traditionally pressed olive oil, and home-cooked meals, we are assuming the mantle of the aristocrats of old. We are reducing the options of others as we attempt to impose our elite culinary preferences on the rest of the population. End quote. Buying and cooking fresh local foods all the time is simply not a reality for so many people, for so many reasons, and a huge one being time. If and when food was made in those slower ways, it required a sacrifice. It reflected a different structure of our societies. You know, a lot of frozen and microwavable food took off when more women entered the workforce. You can take whatever you want from that correlation, but so many visions and expectations of how a household should function were created in a limited reality in which one person stayed home all day to cook and clean, or in which people had servants or enslaved people to meet those expectations. It was never a reality for all people, and it's a reality for even fewer people today. So I think that's all an important reminder about why we have more convenient food these days and why we should be grateful for it. However, one point that I think is missing here, and perhaps because it's kind of beyond the scope of Loudon's original article, is the ways in which some convenience food is unhealthy today and how problematic that becomes when it is the only food accessible to a person, household, or community. While Loudon made an effort to point out the class discrepancies of yore and how so many of the wealthy suffered from so-called diseases of excess, the article doesn't mention how many of those same diseases correlate more with low-income people today. You know, it's hard to defend fast food or convenience foods when eating more healthily has become systemically inaccessible for so many communities. As one person, Simone Tulamello, replied to the article on Twitter, quote, The deconstruction of the past is quite nice, but using it to praise industrialized food is a classic example of false dichotomy, especially since fast food, with its dire ecological and health implications, is now the food of the poor, end quote. Now, to me, it's less false dichotomy and more... Food safety and food accessibility was bad throughout history, and it's bad now. Parts of it were better back then than we sometimes think, and parts of it are better now than we sometimes think. But it is good, every now and then, to be reminded of different perspectives on the versions of history and on our present that we frequently tell ourselves. And on that note, as we are discussing food and cultural shaming and different perspectives, I highly recommend the podcast Maintenance Phase, which debunks the junk science behind health fads, wellness scams, and nonsensical nutrition advice. And one of the co-hosts, Aubrey Gordon, who sometimes goes by the handle Your Fat Friend online, has a new book out this week called You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. 
Gordon's writing and the podcast overall is super smart and really refreshing, especially to everyone who lived through the particularly toxic body culture of the early 2000s. So I'll put a link in the show notes to both of those, as well as the full unabridged version of Loudon's article if you want to give it a read yourself. Well, combining today's discussion of fast food and yesterday's segment on bees, here's a story from 2019 that you might have missed. McDonald's in Sweden built a miniature McDonald's restaurant just for bees. The McHive was constructed and showcased in a video by advertising agency Design Boom and made to celebrate the beehives that many Swedish McDonald's restaurants actually have on their rooftops. Most of them are just ordinary looking beehives, except for the one lucky franchise that took home the custom McHive after an auction. I'll put a link to the video in the show notes so you can see the McHive yourself. It has also piqued my interest in other creatively designed beehives, so if you have any particular favorites that you've stumbled across before, let me know. Tweet them at me, at JackIsNotABird. I want to see some good hives. But that's it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again on Monday.